Welcome to Brownie and Blue Podcast with your host, MC. That's me. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at Brownie and Blue and make sure to check out the Heroes Podcast Network at heroespodcastnetwork.com and follow all the great podcasts that are offered in that network. This podcast is part of the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network, the network for first responders and those who support them. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming back to Brownie and Blue on this uh, podcast episode. I'm joined by a 20-year veteran of the Air Force by the name of Jeff Engel. Jeff uh, started as an EMT at age 18. He joined the Air Force as an E2, which is an airman, in 2001 prior to December 11th. And he's also done a few deployments, one which he deployed as security forces member in 2003 in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. And he's also been uh, with the Air Force Office of Special Investigations as a criminal investigator. And again, he's been there for 20 years uh, with the military, uh, with the Air Force. He's also served as a patrolman. He's been a police officer for the past 16 years, served as a patrolman, a shift commander, a field training officer, a detective, and now a detective corporal. So help me welcome Jeff Angle. Jeff, how are you, man? All right, brother. Thank you. I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Good. Is there anything that you would like to add to this impressive resume and your history of not only uh, the military, but law enforcement? Uh, yeah, you know, I could say, is, you know, I, I, I built a life of service and, and time in my country and, you know, dedicated to, you know, the country and the community. And it's something that I would I would never change for the life of me. And if I could do it all over again, I would do the same thing, you know, little adjustments, but it'd be the same thing because you just can't get enough, of, you know, giving back to the great world we live in. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And I think these days it's it's kind of rare to hear that. Right. I mean, from veterans, yes, but from just uh, everyday walk of life, it just feels like the narrative is always so negative. Like, uh, you know, you're living in a free country and you fought for that free freedom that people can actually have that free speech to say, oh, I don't like this. I don't like that. Oh, you know, those things. But yet here you are 20 years pre 9-11. You've gone from not only seeing the unity that happened post 9-11, right? To now, to now you're in a profession where as a law enforcement officer, you're seeing not only a great division and, and being what I would say demonized in some, some circles, depending on where you read and who you talk to. um, But also just, you know, the aspect of the danger, you know, I, I, I would say that in a lot of ways, I feel like there's a war on cops. And, you know, so you've seen it from both ends. You've seen it from where the unity is to where it is now, um, which is incredible. What is, what is your quick take on, on all this that you've seen up till now? So, so yeah, we look, you know, we, we go back in time and, you know, when I first started, you know, in the EMS world and transitioned, you know, into law enforcement in the military side of things, it was, you know, the unity was there, right? We, you know, we were pre-September 11th. Um, the world was, you know, spinning around and around. And yeah, there's things here and there, but it was nothing compared to where it is today. And, you know, 
September 11th kicked off and, you know, gave a whole new meaning to service and, you know, what we're giving back to each other and, to, you know, to our countries and our communities. And then, you know, the world fell and we all joined together and, you know, held closely, but shortly thereafter, just like we talk about, it says never forgotten, but, you know, it has long been forgotten. And, you know, there's that quick reminder that here we are um, because we're so worried about everything else going on around us that, you know, we forget about the small things about, you know, where we are tied in together. Yeah, that's, I think that is what's forgotten. You know, we, we don't understand. I don't know why it takes a cataclysmic event like that for people to understand that there's more of a center uh, that we can get back to and more of a, what I would consider a, com a common ground, right? Because for the most part, you know, everybody can find something that's common in how they live every day. Um, whether, you know, I mean, we all have struggles, whether it's families, whether it's you know, just yourself um, and fighting whatever that inner demon is. I mean, we can all find some type of common ground um, with you, though. So your history, right? I always like to get into kind of like why, why the military, why law enforcement? What about your childhood, if anything, helped you, uh, influenced you, motivated you to go the route that you've gone? Sure. So, you know, my my mom and dad growing up, um, you know, raised in a strict household, um, you know, plenty of rules and stuff that, I, you know, are often forgotten today. But, you know, I'd always, you know, the joke was had to be home before the streetlights were on kind of thing. And it was so true. Right. Um, you know, mom and dad, you know, they were they were there and, you know, present in every day of my life. And, you know, as I grew, my grandfather served um, in previous wars, you know, in past, as well as my uh, my uncle, who was a Marine Corps D.I., um, during Vietnam and sent a lot of troops down range for that. And, you know, a lot of folks we know didn't come home from that as well. And, you know, he always spoke very high of the military. And then I had a couple of cousins that went into the military and, and joined that way. And it was always interesting, right? Cause it's, you know, it's always that, wow, like, look at these folks, you know, they're, you know, they look sharp, they act sharp, they're, they're squared away. And it's kind of how it was raised squared away, you know, as we are today, you know, it's, it's where we are that kind of drove me to that. And, I feel that, you know, the nine years of Catholic school, while I didn't like it at the time, really set me up for success because it kept me straight. Right. It, it kept me on a, on, a, on a path of, you know, righteousness to allow me to get where I am today. Um, while I didn't understand certain things then, I think it's, it's where it's grown to this point today. That's awesome, man. So a disciplined childhood through your family and I'm sure exterior. Um, and then now you're talking about Catholic school. Um, my my wife actually went through Catholic school too. She's actually very disciplined as well, but it was an all girls Catholic school. So I don't know. Um, yeah, I didn't get all girls, but you know, I wouldn't fit my, you know, my, I'm sure, my realm. I'm point, sure you but, would have loved to, but uh, that, hey, you, may, you may have been in a different profession now, if that were the case. Yeah, you ain't lying. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, so it was, it was a good mix. And like I said, it was kindergarten through ninth or eighth. And then uh, I decided I needed to change. And that structure was a little bit tight at the time. Um, while I didn't really understand it, I felt that, you know, I wanted to transition to the public side of school systems and I transitioned well. And the transition was a little challenging because I didn't have any friends, right? Like mm -hmm. I you know, coming from Catholic to public, everybody kind of, you know, you didn't do that at that time. Right. Um, but I transitioned to public school and, you know, I had a great, you know, high school, you know, growing up and as a, um, late sophomore, early junior, I got involved in EMS as a first responder for a small program they had it in town down around the next town over from us. And I started doing that fell in love with you know service and helping folks and you know here i am at 16 years old 
answering, you know, first aid and ambulance calls. And I was also doing civil air patrol at the time. Um, so I was kind of dabbling in both worlds and you know, I just loved it. It was just, it just kind of fit. Right. And right. I carried it through to become an adult. And that's when I got my EMT and graduated high school. And, you know, I didn't graduate with, you know, 4.0 honors, but I got through. Um, it wasn't the end of the world, but there we are. And I never I started college briefly as a paramedic to go to paramedic school, trying to uh, move up in the thing. And that's when I shortly then transitioned and had a good friend of mine. She came up and says, ah, I just joined the Air Force. And I'm like, get the hell out of here. Right. <laughs> and uh, my best friend had left to go to Marine Corps. And, you know, we had talked about going together, but I can remember my uncle as a DI was like, ah, you're going to go out and kill people. I'm like, nah, it's not really my <laughs> cup of tea. Right. Uh, he's like, well, let's rethink about this. So I thought, thought about it and I found the Air Force. And when my, my friend left, it was kind of motivating. Right. So I just I, I decided if she's jumping ship, well, guess what? Here I go. And off I went into the wild blue yonder. So I just want for the listeners to understand your background, your um, law enforcement career has been in the great state of New Jersey, correct? Oh, yes. The armpit of America. <laughs> so are you originally from Jersey? Is I am born you and raised. Up? Okay. Yep. Born and raised South Jersey. Um, the only time I left uh, was to go on a quick vacation here and there with my family. And then uh, once the military kicked in, I, you know, that's where I, I, I left my, uh, my boots off the ground here and joined the service and traveled where I've traveled. Where uh, these are, where's the best place that you've traveled to? Man, I could tell you, I, I think there's a best in everything I've been, you know, every, there, there's a positive experience I think I've brought out of every location I've ever been to. Right. Um, you know, I joined, I went down to Lackland air force base and basic training, um, spent, you know, from May 1st, um, until September 7th, when I graduated from security forces Academy, um, in 2001. And then, uh, obviously that's when the world flipped upside down and Lackland was great. You know, they get the river, river walk down there and a lot of history down there with the Alamo and different things like that. So it was it was nice to spend the time there. And then I got shot right over to Korea. Uh, you know, unbeknownst to me, it was it wasn't on my dream sheet. I didn't even have anything picked to go overseas. And, um, you know, our whole class, those that picked overseas stayed stateside. And those that picked stateside all went overseas. So it was kind of odd the way it worked. But, you know, everything works for a reason. And when I got to Korea. I could tell you Korea was, was, was fascinating. Initially it was hard because I was 21 years old, you know, I left home and, you know, here I am still a kid in a, in a sense. Right. Um, while I'm an adult, but it, you know, I never left, you know, the nest. Right. Right. And here I am in a, in a, in a country where I have no nothing about anything and little adaption to it, but you know, I met great people, ate amazing food, um, drank a lot of soju and, you know, and had a great <laughs> time, you know, how long were you in Korea? I lived there for a year. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things, the hallmark of a lot of veterans that I talk to and that I'm friends with, and one of the reasons why they joined or even got in was because there was this, they wanted to get out from where they were used to, whatever town, whatever place they were at. And so the military was a kind of a vehicle to get them outside of that comfort zone and to see different things and to see the world. I think um, seeing the world and whether, um, I don't know if you agree, but seeing the world and how other people live uh, and how they go about their daily things is probably the best education you can have. Sure. And I, I think it gives you a greater appreciation of life too, right? You know, we here we are in the land of America, land of the free, the land of the great and everything else you want to call it, right? But everything that we're given here, you know, you go to, you know, other countries and it's an anomaly in a sense, right? You don't even have 
an option to have advantage to, you know, things like that. You go to Afghanistan or small countries, you know, in the Stan area, region there, and, you know, even Germany's and, you know, Korea, Turkey's places like that, there's places that you go and you see it and they don't have the things that we have. I mean, they have some things, but, you know, how fortunate is that we can walk around and pretty much do or, you know, get whatever we want at any given point by just picking up your phone and, and there they are, they're still, you know, walking things in by, you know, however they get things to where they need to be, you know? Right. You know, there was a great example. I don't know if you know who this man is, but his name is Enos or Ennis Cantor. He played for the New York Knicks for a little bit, and he's a Turkish-born He's a Turkish born basketball player and played in Turkey for many, many years and then came to the NBA, got drafted, and he started speaking out against the Turkish government. And okay. what happened was he started realizing that while he was in America, he could say these things. At first, he was scared. He actually heard other people around him start speaking about against our government. And he would tell right. them, like, you can't do that. You're going to get arrested because that was his culture, right? Sure. Up in Turkey. So he started doing it and he started realizing the free speech that we have in America, which was, I think, to him, just based on the articles I've read and what he stated is that it was it was inspiring, but it was also it, it opened his eyes to something sure. new that he never knew. So once he started speaking against the Turkish government, his dad, who was still in Turkey, ended up getting arrested because about he, because he wasn't there. Sure. So, you know, it's one of these things where you don't know how incredible this country is just based off of the fact of that First Amendment right of free speech to the point sure. where you can say things and you're not going to be arrested. Nobody's dictating how you're going to speak or think. But, you know, not to get on offshoot, but I feel like there's there's things that were going into that kind of realm, right? Especially with, sure, and, and you, go ahead. Yeah. And you think about today with all the Afghans that were just flown across the sea, you know, the pond to come back over here to the United States after, you know, they gave, you know, 2001 to almost present day, right. Of, of service to, you know, their communities by bringing, you know, working on the military installation and then giving it back to their families by, you know, reaping the benefits that way. And then, you know, things get, you know, hot and heavy over there you know, all of a sudden now they're all flown across the, the pond back to the United States. And, you know, they're about to be delved into 142 different cultures within this country. Right. Because we're, we're you know, the melting pot of the world. Right. So everybody right. comes and, you know, from every walk of life and, you know, to, to drop all these folks and think about how their minds are going to be when they step foot out of the bases and go on to the, you know, the public and experience life for the first time in a wholly different, you know, different realm that they've never even seen or experienced before, except for what they've seen on a little bit of TV or stuff that they read about. Yeah, and, and that's exactly right. And one of the things that, um, you know, coincides with that is how they were dealt with, with their local law enforcement, whether it was federal or local, I don't know how it would even be set up. But just to give you an example, you know, I'm from El Salvador, I've talked to Salvadorians that have come over here. And in sure. El Salvador, local police, I mean, you're paying them to not get mm -hmm. arrested or to not, you know, get a ticket or whatever the case is. Or you're not paying them and you're just getting locked up because you have no rights, right? So right. they come here and they're scared of the police because their norm is the police are going to do these certain things. For you, you're coming from the military side. You're coming from security forces. Did you deal a lot with um, 
the natives of whatever country you were in on that base? Or did you did you have any experiences with that? So so in Korea, we um, we exercised a lot, you know, obviously, because of the way the world spins. And that was a big thing that we did over there. But, you know, part of, you know, Korea, that mission over there was mostly ground based defense and, you know, the you know security of the of the installation. Um, and you would you would deal with the locals every once in a while with, you know, things here and there. And, you know, the biggest thing that comes to find, you know, is when you, you go to challenge or you go to speak to these folks and you have a conversation Well, you can't speak to them because you don't have to talk their language. So then you're speaking through an interpreter. And when you're going through an interpreter to have a conversation, it's a whole different game, right? Um, as far as communication, because, you know, you're, we often talk to the person that we're speaking to. However, you know, when you're speaking through an interpreter, you have to look at the, the person you're speaking to, not so much, and have the interpreter like the parrot over there speaking for you, right? Right. Um, and that's, that's challenging because you want to look to the interpreter to talk, but you're really speaking to the person across the way from you. And, you know, those are the cultural differences that we're not used to. And there's no real training on that, right? Like, you know, you, you can learn, you get those little cue cards and say, you do this, you say this, you don't pick your teeth, you don't pick your nose, you pick your, whatever you want to do, right? Right, right. Because um, it's offensive. But, you know, when you're trying to have a conversation and explain to them, hey, you can't be here, you have to, this is not an area for you to be, you need to go somewhere else. You know, the communication is often challenging. And that's when things start to heat up. Because, you know, you start to talk louder, you start to get, you know, amped up and, you know, not thinking about, you know, what's right in front of you um, right. when it's not, it's more of a misunderstanding, right? You know, you just go to speak to somebody from a different language and you say, hey, you know, what do we start doing? When we talk to somebody that doesn't speak English. We start yelling at them, right? Because they think they understand when you start slowing down, but you start screaming <laughs> at them. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't accomplish anything, does it? Right, I mean, right. You know, and then that just sends them up a little bit. And then they think they're going to get in trouble because like you said, they're used to a culture that, you know necessarily the police aren't often, you know, on the right side of the ship and, you know, they're, whether, whatever their motivation is, they're protecting, you know, whatever, but it, it's there and it's, it's crazy. So yes, cultural differences make a challenge for, for sure. You know, that's a great um, transition to my next question to you, as far as when you were in the military, you did security forces. And then when you transition from that to now you're in law enforcement, okay, you go into law enforcement you have not only the training and the experiences with the military, but then now you're going through an academy, you're learning Fourth Amendment, you're learning all these different things and how to apply it. And then not only that, but even just your previous training. So how do you transition or how did you transition? And what were your feelings of like, what was the difference between being in the military to being in law enforcement? So, you know, I kind of, my fortunate timeline is I separated from active duty. I got out um, for a quick, you know, extend of time from 2005 into 2006. And then I went back down to Fletzy for the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center to uh, become a criminal investigator for the Office of Special Investigations. And then, so that was an academy all in itself. And that was a luxury kind of stay there down at Fletzy, right? Because you're, you're learning about, you know, criminal invests and doing things that, you know, the Fletzy way and you get through it and you have a great experience and, you know, enjoyed a time down in, you know, Brunswick, Georgia. And then from there, you know, you come back home and then shortly thereafter, I got picked up for the police department and it was right back at another academy, but it was almost, it was back to basic training um, academy, except this was only 23 weeks long and you're getting screamed and holler at from day one, all the way through till day zero, you know, end. And, you know, it, it was, it was, it was tough, but I feel that, you know, having that security forces style background and, you know, the things that we were doing kept it consistent for that transition into, um, 
into the police world on the civilian side. Okay. And what was, did you feel that there was a difference in the aspect of even now, like through your 16 career as a law enforcement officer, how do you deal with the community? Did you feel like your, your experiences overseas and that cultural know-how in dealing with different diverse backgrounds, do you feel that that was an edge when you went out into the policing world as a patrolman or even now as a detective when you speak to different cultural um, people? Was that a benefit? Yeah, so I can tell you, you know, when I first started and, you know, any, any of the guys, if they ever listen to this and, you know, that have worked with me, you know, I'm a hard charger, man. I'm going to get right to it. And there's no nonsense. You know, I often say, I often joke and say I'm very direct and pointed to my conversation, which I often attribute to, you know, the challenges on the flight line when people cross your white line, right? You, you're not supposed to be there. And you're like, get on the ground. You know, if you don't listen, you're on the ground and prone them out. Right. And, you know, you've got combat over the whole nine yards, right? Right. Um, and that doesn't necessarily apply in the civilian world, you know, because you can't necessarily do that kind of thing. Um, now, the, the sternness and the strictness and the directness is all there. Um, however, it wasn't until I came back from Afghanistan in 2010 um, when I really started to grasp the concept of understanding how to communicate with people, because all we did in Korea, there was a lot of folks that spoke English um, and you could still communicate to a point where they understood it. But in Afghanistan, everything was through an interpreter and body language and the way you carried yourself and, you know, all that kind of stuff was a totally different dynamic. And, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't until I came in from there when I really started understanding and trying to figure out the importance of communication and, and how important it is just to relate because a lot of it relies off of body language and the way you present yourself. And if you're coming in an aggressive posture, nobody's going to talk to you. Right. Yeah. You get bees, you get more bees with honey. Correct. I mean, even that's, oh, that's absolutely. just, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where you, you know, if you treat folks um, with the dignity and respect that they deserve in a way they would be want to be treated under identical circumstances, you're never going to go. I mean, Will you have friction? Sure. There, there's going to be tension because as a law enforcement officer, we meet people at their worst day. Yeah. You know, not commonly do that people call you and say, Hey, how's it going? And I want to come over and hang out and give you a cup of coffee. Right. Um, people call us when they're in the time of need and you know, they're under stress. You're going out there not knowing what you're walking into. And then that heightens your stress. And then there's yelling and screaming. So there's your stress keeps ticking higher and higher, but at some point we now need to bring it down lower and lower to try to gain control and traction of that, that situation at the time, whatever it may be. No, most definitely. You got to, you got to be able to, in a sense, read the room, right? That's what they say. Um, and then you got to be Absolutely. able to, yeah, you got to be able to understand who you're talking to and how to engage that person. And I think that's in all walks of life. And I love how you just put that, you know, you got to treat people how you want to be treated, or I've even heard other um, very wise officers say, you got to treat people how you would want your mother or your grandmother to be treated, right? And how they, yep. how you would want them yep. to be spoken to. Um, and and I, I look at it when I talk about, you know, treat under that, you know, for the identical circumstances, right? Like if I was in your same shoes, how would I feel at that point? And if yours as a police officer were to come in, um, you know, and not be in my shoes, how would you treat that person versus, you know, listen, let me put myself where you are. Let's take a look around what's going on, identify some things that may be able to be a common place for both sides and, and have that conversation to bring the room back down to a, a centered area, you know? You, you know what you're just describing? You're describing verbal judo. <laughs> that's like the big- Very, sexy... very, very, very much in, uh, yep. That's what it is, right? Very I much mean, in tune with verbal judo. It 100%. Yeah. 
I mean, that's that's how it is, right? You have to be able to de-escalate the situation by word of mouth and not by your actions. I've been around too many police officers and I'm not knocking the profession. It's in certain ways, ignorance, in certain ways, just lack of understanding. Um, and sometimes it's also, you know, what I love is listening to Jacko and he says, check your ego. You know, you gotta, you gotta check your ego when you go out into the community, you know, nobody's doing this to, in a sense, you know, uh, personalize the job that you're doing. So therefore you got to check your ego. And by doing that, you find more empathy and you find better ways to engage with the community. Would you? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what it's all about. Right. We, you know, you talk about let go of your ego. Right. So, um, and that's more let go of your ego in a sense, because, you know, anybody can attack every part of your person, whether it's your race, creed, religion, money, whatever you want to talk about, sexual orientation, you can go up and down a list. I think there's 10 different things in that list that you could necessarily attack, right? But at any given point, somebody can only always tax you like, hey, you're a fat slob. Okay, cool. Thanks. I appreciate you. Or hey, you're you're this or you're that, you know, whatever it comes to be, right? But they're only hitting one or two points of your entire, you know, origin basis, right? As far as every piece you're hitting. So why, why does that even matter at the point? Yeah, they can call you names. The old sticks and stones will break my bones. Yeah, I get it. But, you know, names don't – it doesn't mean nothing to you, right? Right. And we in our career – and I get it. We're all entitled to bad days, right? You know, I'm, I'm a human being just as much as I'm a police officer, and I, I do have my bad days, right? Um, however, you know, when you get to a situation, people call you for help to be able to fix that situation. And you got to check your ego at the door and walk in there with a level mind and – you know, treat those folks with the dignity and respect that they deserve. And, you know, if you off start up, you know, throwing out options rather than threats, you know, that goes a long way when you talk to somebody, right. You know, mm-hmm. instead of saying, Hey, you're going to get locked up. Okay. Well, listen, I'd hate to do this to you. Um, I don't want to lock you up. I'd like to keep you home with your family. However, I need you to settle down. If not, these are their options and you give them the options and make them make the choice. And it makes your decision very easy. And, you know, with body cams, it's there. And, folks have the option to say, Hey, I don't want to agree with you. And then it's easy to explain why they're getting you in trouble. You know what I mean? Yep. No, that's perfect. And it's well stated. Um, with your career, as far as law enforcement, you've seen, you've seen the worst of the worst, as you just stated in people and situations with people for you though, what have, especially now being a detective, give a background real quick, uh, before I ask this question, your detective, you're detective corporal. So does your department for you, do you guys investigate? It's like all major crimes or is it certain sections that do that? Yeah. So we, we being a smaller agency, we are multifaceted from homicides all the way down to your lowest level, you know, crime in a sense. Right. Um, commonly with the homicides and the the bigger jobs where there's death or serious bodily injury, um, our County prosecutor's office or the state will get involved in regards to that. But Everything else pretty much falls on our on our backs, you know, when it comes to conducting investigations. So for us, there's no real specialty because we're very much well-rounded in all aspects of investigations. And, you know, and I talk about that is, you know, we're, you get a robbery, you get burglaries, you get all these different jobs. And unless, you know, people are dying and rounds are flying, it's, you know, and even that at times is, you know, a question as far as what's going to happen. But you know, we are, we have to be ready and, and knowledgeable to be able to investigate all those, all those different things. That's awesome. What, um, what has been some of your cases that stuck with you? Worst cases, 
Right. So cases, and it, stuff like that. Yeah. Good, good, bad, and different. Right. So there's, there's a lot of reward and there's a lot of, a lot of negative that flies into the mix. Right. Cause you know, I often say I'm an undertaker half my career because, you know, anytime somebody passes away, that's unattended, we go out and investigate it. Cause you want to make sure that there's no foul play. Right. Right. Um, you know, old people pass away, younger people pass away. We know heroin and fentanyl's, you know, the doom of society right now, the way it is. And, you know, we're commonly out, you know, looking at those, you know, recovering bodies and, you know, sending them to the morgue, and, you know, getting those kind of investigations. But then the more serious things, you know, I had several years ago, I had a young female girl. She was two years old, um, was struck up the side of the head by her boyfriend and, you know, shifted her brain several centimeters to, to a direction and, you know, put her in the hospital and a tube down her throat and paralyzed. And, you know, I had another family at one point, you know, they gave, uh, they stuck their daughter with heroin because um, the baby wouldn't stop because they were on our honeymoon and they put a needle in the kid and shut him up with heroin and caused the baby doing some respiratory arrest. You know, so those are challenging, right? And they don't only just affect you as a person, but they affect, you know, your, your EMS folks, your fire folks, those that come in and, you know, it, it's challenging at times. And then you add your homicides in the mix. We had, you know, several years ago, we had a, a pretty bad homicide where a mom and her his young boy was killed um, in the apartment complex. And, you know, it was, it was, one of the most violent scenes I've ever been to in my career, and you know, and even seeing stuff you see downrange, this is America, right? Like you don't not supposed to see that kind of stuff here. And, you know, it's just, it was one of those things where you just kind of say, and you're like, wow, you know, it's, it's challenging. Right. But a lot of that stuff, you got to keep it at the door and know that before you, you come home, you got to check that tag at the front door and not let that pass that threshold because it, it will haunt you. And there are challenges behind it and it definitely makes it difficult. You, you touched on something that is, such a needed thing in law enforcement, um, which is, how, well, well, let me get back to this. How do you check that for you, Detective Jeff Engel? How do you check those things? Because in recent, you know, history with law enforcement, from what I've seen, a lot of people carry, they compartmentalize, right? And you can look at compartmentalization as negative or positive. And just based off of my experience, and even with my own things that I've seen, I've handled it both good and bad, right? I've had Same. positive ways to where I've handled it. And then I've had good ways to where I've handled it. But the good ways were usually on the heels of the bad, because it messed me up, or it messed up my family, or whatever the case that is. So therefore, you start learning the better ways of how to handle these things. For you, what has that what, what does that look like? You know, you, you said check it at the door, but what does that look like for you? You have, for, for those that are listening, Jeff's in front of a squat rack. <laughs> He's got weights and, you know, he looks like, you know, pretty in shape guy. And I would just venture to say that that's probably one of your ways of how you check it at the door. Sure. And, and, and to be perfectly honest with you, you know, it's, you know, I often say round is a shape too, right? You know, so. <laughs> you know, not that, you know, make fun of, you know, but I'm, I mean, I'm, I say, I, I try to take care of myself as best I can in, in the, in the time that I'm allotted. Right. Um, but the, the hardest thing that we come across is, is when you go to check that at the door, you know, commonly when you walk through the front door, I'm walking into, you know, three kids under four years old. Right. Um, which is a whole nother tornado, you know, run there and absolutely love every second of it. But, you know, there's oftentimes there's no separation for decompression. Right. Um, one thing I, I recently learned for me that's been extremely helpful has been meditation. 
um, the transcendental meditation process of, you know, taking 20 minutes of just quiet time and, you know, you sit with no, nothing around you, no noise, and you, you sit and just decompress. And, it, you know, it's kind of weird science. I really don't understand it. It's, you know, something 60 some days ago I recently learned and it's, it's very, very new, but I wish I had this in the beginning of my career, right? Um, I'm a firm believer in exercise and fitness. If you can, if you can just move, it doesn't have to be a lot, but if you, if you get out and you, you move about for 20 minutes, I went for a walk before I even came home today um, because the temperatures hit 60 degrees in the middle of February, which is, you know, New Jersey for you. Right. Um, nice. But, you know, it was nice just to be able to take a lap around the park and just, just take a look around and enjoy what's, what's around you. But we often forget those things in the long haul, which, you know, it, it can be challenging, right. Um, food, you know, is another thing, you know, try to maintain what you eat. You know, you, you can't drink your desires away. Um, years ago, I, I would say not that I was on a, on the brink of a drinking problem, but I definitely enjoyed alcoholic beverages on the regular. And, you know, to this day now, I don't even drink alcohol um, just because I know it's it's a negative. Right. And if I can leave that at the door with everything else. Right. I don't I don't need it to survive. You know, you right. know there's plenty of H2, H2O in the world to get you through those days. Right. Yep. Um but, you know, all these different factors, I stay away from the media as best I can. I, I will watch it, um, but I kind of stay away from that, that whole side of the house just because it's all negative. Um, you got you to replace the bad with the good, right, and, and generate more positives. Um, we have a sign in our house, you know, that my wife hung up for us. And next to that, we have some gratitude post-it notes hanging out, you know, just to see, you know, positive things that are floating around. And this is all stuff that's been kind of growing over time. And you know, you see these things and like I said, you leave the negative where it is at the door and bring it home with the positive. Um, it definitely helps alleviate a lot of problems. I mean, it doesn't solve the world's problems, but definitely puts you in a better mindset. Well, I mean, I think it's it's not about it's it's not about solving the world as a whole, it's solving your world, right? Because right. that's the most important thing. You know, you're you're helping solve your world's problems, which you know, a lot of cops these days, well, not these days, but just in general, you've seen suicides, you've heard about suicides, on top of, you know, cops getting killed, um, ambushed, attacked, whatever the case is. There's a lot to go with the, the profession to the point where you can be negative, right? You can, you can put on that armor of negativity, and be angry at the establishment in coming against you, whether it's even your own leadership, um, lack of leadership with that, or even your own uh, community where they don't trust you. I love the fact that you're talking about something that is a vulnerable aspect, right? Most cops don't want to be, well, I don't want to, I don't want to generalize. A lot of cops that I've known don't want to be vulnerable because that seems as a weak thing to do. And so they do replace it with alcohol. They replace it with hanging out. They replace it with you know, grab ass in at the club or whatever the case is. Sure. A lot of these negative things that go with the negative narrative of all these other things. With you in a leadership position, Jeff, as a detective corporal, how do you instill that positivity within your department with the people that you work with? Have you addressed any issues to where you're like, hey, I see the negativity in this person. I need to do something about it. I'm a leader and I'm going to be an example of positivity, especially in this day and age. Yeah. So, you know, I, I can tell you, you know, 
and I don't necessarily think it's the best way to describe it, but, you know, they often say if, if you've known folks that have committed suicide, you're a survivor of suicide as well, um, because you feel their pain and trauma, right? And in my, in my career, I've lost, I want to say, six folks to suicide that I've known directly, mm. um, whether I was directly friends with or have worked with in some capacity. Um, and it's hard, right? And one that touched my heart, you know, several years ago was um, a guy that, you know, worked for our prosecutor's office that, you know, took, you know, committed, you know, what he did and took the ultimate sacrifice to send himself out of pain and, you know, to settle that in. And, you know, it was sad. And, you know, I presented to my chief of police or my captain at the time, you know, there's no resiliency here, right? Like resiliency is something that we don't commonly fall and, you know, find and, you know, you know, knowing it from the military. And I had a friend, you know, a guy I work with, you know, who's a, a master resiliency trainer, you know, we talked about it and we took it to the chief and I cold called over to the University of Penn um, at the uh, Positive Psychology Center. And the doctor there, she was the creator of the um, U.S. military's program for resiliency. So we set up an, a meeting um, and got a couple of power players from the state of New Jersey. And then they came down, um, they met with it, then they took it back to the state. And then ultimately from that initial meeting to where we are today, um, resiliency training is mandatory in the state of New Jersey, um, which is huge um, because we instruct folks at the police department uh, once a month, you know, for just an hour, um, one block of training per the resiliency, you know, training protocol that we're given. Um, and those folks are allowed to vent and in its essence, be vulnerable if they wish to be vulnerable because um, we can only carry so many rocks in our bag. Right. And as you fill them up and, you see things, you do things. Once that ro- that bag is full, there's there's not a lot of options left, right? But to go to the negative behavior, mm-hmm. and you know you resort to negative behavior because it feels good maybe at the time, but they're just it's just spillage of that full bag. And until you can remove that stuff and be able to bounce back and get yourself back into the game in a positive light, those things are there. So we present tools and you know things that are allow folks to be able to bounce back after stressful times and. You know, there's there's all different domains and tenants that fall in line with it, you know, whether it's, you know, mental, physical, spiritual, you know, stuff like that. It's but it's allows folks to have options, you know, to be able to say, hey, here we are. And then if they wish to talk to one of us as a resiliency program officer, um, they can do it in confidence. And, you know, we're bound by law to not speak about it unless it's a threat to self or others or they're going to commit a crime. You know, what I mean, and it's more self-care amongst each other, which is huge because. You know, what's a cop want to do more than they want to talk to another cop? They don't want to talk to somebody who has no idea. And that in itself helps lift that burden of stress off of, you know, the officer. And they say, hey, it doesn't matter where you are in the state. You could be north all the way up north and all the way down south. And you pick up the book and say, hey, I like this name right here. I'm going to call this guy. He gets on the phone. He's had the same training I have. Make the phone call and they can talk about it. And then we can make a referral to cop to cop. You make a referral to a program that they need assistance with that we have access to. Or you just have a conversation and oftentimes it makes you feel better. No, definitely. I mean, I had a guy on who had uh, diagnosed PTSD, California, um, LAPD cop going through a lot of stuff. And he actually came on the podcast because he's held so much stuff in. I told him, I said, you're going to feel so much better after you talk about this. And he did. He felt incredible after we talked about it and he did it in a brave way on on this podcast um so when you talk about that it is a vulnerable thing it's a very vulnerable thing but it's also a very strong thing to do because it's so easy 
to coat your coat your body with all this negative stuff that seems like it's the right thing to do it's the man thing to do it's the machismo thing to do in law enforcement you know and I love the fact that you are spearheading this in Jersey where you went to your your leaders and said this is what we need to do and now it's in now, now it's something that is a mandated thing so specifically it's mandated is it mandated on a yearly basis where they go back and get a retrain and then it is also yep. mandated for academies as well yeah so as far as academies i'm not overly delved into the academy world however I've, i have heard that they've been presenting the resiliency stuff there because i'm a firm believer this stuff's got to start from the bottom if you talk to an old crusty cop that's been on the job for 20 25 years there's no way in the world they're going to be breaking down telling you their inner dark secrets, right? There's no way they're going to be sitting there telling you what they've done in their career and, you know, how they feel and, you know, because they don't want to show emotion because old school mentality is the fact that, Hey, listen, you know, we can't be doing this, right? Um, you can't talk about how you feel, you know, you can't do anything like that. However, we understand where um, today the most important thing is, is, is you can't hold it in. There's, there's no way. And the years of combat and time that we've spent down range and, all the studies of post-traumatic stress and, you know, that stuff. I mean, it's, it's real. Right. And if it's only, it's real because it's there and it's everyday present. And if you don't do anything to fix it, you know, you're never going to be able to combat it. And I feel that that's important because like I said, I'm not one to go speak my, my heart out. Um, however, you know, after, you know, I say the last 66 days, I think it was, um, I spent some time in the program for a, a long week and was some of the most powerful people in the world um, doing God's work. And, and I can tell you that we were all on the same page by the time we left that program. And we are alpha dominant folks. Like we are not one to put ourselves out there um, and show vulnerability because what is it? It's a sign of weakness. But in a sense, it's a sign of strength. And I often I say that now because I didn't believe it before. But you step outside the box, you, it allows you to be a human being and somebody that, that gives a shit about yourself and others around you. Cause you got to take care of one before you can take care of anybody else. I love it. I love it, man. You're, you're hitting on stuff that I've gone through because I've gone through programs myself. I've had my inner demons. I've had my inner turmoil and the programs that I've gone through, I've gone to a point where you just reach tears because you're pulling back that onion. You're pulling back so many layers to the point where you can understand origins of why and how you're reacting to things right and in doing that you're facing this pit of darkness that you've just shunned or that you've coated with this other stuff so therefore you never want to look at it and law enforcement in itself is it's classic for them to do that it is a it is their mo to do certain things like that so the fact that you're doing that is awesome it's awesome, man. I commend you for doing that. Um, one of the things that I have found with me personally, when it comes to pulling back that layer, delving into these dark places, facing those fears, being more vulnerable, it's gotten me to be more compassionate and it's gotten me to be a better mm -hmm. father to my six-year-old. And with you, have you found that to be true as well? Um, 150,000%, right? You know, I, several years ago, I learned about the five whys and, 
you know, and, and I don't know if it, you know, it's kind of like peeling the onion back, right? There's, there's a layer to every skin, right? So every time you get to a layer, there's another reason why, right? Um, and I often look at, you know, the problem, like if you were taking an example, I ran a red light. Well, why'd you run a red light? I was late for work. All right, well, why'd you do that? Because well, I woke up late. Well, why'd you do that? Because my alarm didn't go off. You know, they're excuses, right? And we're constantly moving down the line. And why'd you do that? Well, I exhausted this. You know, why did you do that? I forgot to check. But if you peel it back so far to the point, you're going to get to the root cause of where the problem lies, right? And it's very helpful um, to be able to understand inside. And I, you know, I often tell folks that, you know, if you're struggling, write your whys down, get it on paper and why yourself to that. Why did I do this? Okay. Well, why did you do that? And, and eventually you're going to get to a point where you're going to be able to understand, and you may be able to see a little bit of that why um, as to where it is. But I can tell you, you know, for me, um, I'd say over the last two years, three years, maybe um, with work stress, you know, family dynamic stress um, and, and not with my wife and folks, but, you know, my, my parents and, you know, family that way, um, some life, you know, shifted events that happened, you know, internally with the family and then you got work stress and then you got environmental stress, you got police stress, you got internal and external for the work environment. Um, so all that kind of stuff, you know, really put not so much, you know, in a dark place where just not happy, angry, mad, frustrated, sad, all, like just no motivation to be able to do things. And, you know, I found an incredible, uh, group of folks at Boulder Crest um, Institute. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Um, and I reached out because um, I didn't know what else to do. You know, mm -hmm. I, I hit I hit a point in my life where I, I was lost um, and I did, didn't know how to write my ship. I tried to why it. I tried to figure it out. But I found my uh, the folks at Boulder Crest and I submitted an application to see if they'd be willing to help me out. And you know, it's, you know, for first responders and, and military folks and, you know, wearing two hats, it would definitely benefited me because I was able to get in the program sooner than later. And in early December, I went away for a week. And, and when I talk about taking the shirt off and being vulnerable, man, I tell you, vulnerability was a very real thing for me. And, you know, it was very humbling, um, but I left a lot of stuff there. And I knew that the past that was there, you got to put that tourniquet on and stop the bleed. If you don't, it's cyclical, right? It constantly will come around and I'll give it to my kids and then my kids will give it to their kids and it will constantly evolve. And I couldn't have my family or my kids, you know, you know, even with my wife, like, you know, trying to understand and do things like I can't come home and explain everything I do at work. Right. And my kids are little, they don't understand, but they see my frustration and it's like a horse, right? They, they, they kind of feel you and they know they kind of read the room like you talk about, right? Um, they feel that and understand that. And that then brings out their negative side and it just becomes a problem. So, you know, I had to stop the bleed at some point and I, I was able to identify the reasons there and I was able to leave them there and, and be given practices to move forward and better myself. That's incredible. Let me ask you, what practices do you employ the most outside of this meditation? You talked about working out, you went there for a week. Um, you know, I know there's a probably a multitude of tools in your basket now that you never had before. Right. So, you know, meditation and breathing is huge for me. Right. I talk about, um, you know, being able to, you know, just be able to respond versus react. And, you know, it's funny because when we we're at home with our families and kids, we're quick to react at our kids spilling milk, quick to react at them dumping cereal on the floor and quick. But when I go to work, right, I go to work, I respond to calls. You make an assessment, you make an approach. Why can't I do that at home? Mm. Right. Mm. 
think about that, right? Like, how do you? You're hitting. You're, you're, you're hitting me. You're hitting me home because I can literally see me snapping at my six-year-old when she spills something, and then she reacts in a point where her body shows that negative emotion, and I hate that. Right. And I've tried to work on that. So for you, you're bringing something to me where it's like, how, how like, what have you done to change that? So, right. So the, the meditation for me has been huge uh, to the fact that, you know, I've been able to um, take the positive steps forward um, to see um, just taking a break in time and to do the TM, the transcendental meditation. And I do that in the morning and I do it in the afternoon or evening just to kind of give that break of the day um, to kind of just self-reflect and just be quiet for a little while to absorb and to be able to understand, you know, what it is. And then when times are getting a little tough, you know, throw a little bit of a breathing exercise in there, a little bit of, you know, combat breathing or four, seven, eight, <laughs> right. um, just to get you to the point where you can take a deep breath and be able to know that, Hey, listen, positive air is good air. You know, you're getting it in your body. You're allowing it to flow. And then, you know, just a little bit of exercise, just moving your body for a short amount of time just to get, you know, yourself back into a regimen, you know? Yep. Well, that's awesome, man. I, I'm, I'm thankful that you delved into that um, because it, it needs to be heard more. There's a lot of great, I, I have not heard of Bouldercrest. Um, I've heard of a lot of different other places that you can go. There's even a just to give a shout out to, I don't know if you've heard of them, but they're called the uh, reps for responders. And what they do is they actually have a zoom meeting every Sunday where you okay. can go there and you can, in a sense, they have certain topics, they have guest speakers talk about certain resiliency type ways that you can deal with stress and law enforcement uh, things that happen. Uh, but Frank, he's an LAP or I'm sorry, an NYPD officer uh, out in New York. And he's the one that runs it, him and his, uh, him and his fiance, but they've done an incredible job. It's so close to you, but it's also something that you could refer your friends to if they have any issues, they can just, they can look up reps and they'll actually pay for gym memberships too. Um, because about that's, that. how, that's how they started. Yeah. And I, and I, and I'd say, you know, I, you know, I, I've, I had heard of Boulder Crest in the past um, through a friend of mine and I didn't think much about it. And um, I originally reached out to uh, Warriors Heart because that's, I had, I had yep. taken a class with an individual that taught that and he's one of the founders of Warrior Heart, um, Tom Spooner. And he was very much a, a guy that, you know, when I, when I learned from school, we talked about his life experiences and the, the, the turmoil that he's been through. And, you know, he's, he's a true American hero, that guy. And, you know, when he was talking, you know, it was in all in regards to, you know, what we talked about. And he, you know, said Warrior Hearts, a program for veterans and first responders, those suffering from, you know, addiction, substance abuse, et cetera, you know, different things like that. And it helps write them on the ship and, you know, do that. And, you know, they, they talk about, you know, helping veterans with problems. And I was like, all right, well, maybe here I am. I, I don't know what to do. I don't, you know, and even being in the resiliency world, I didn't, didn't really know what to do. I was kind of lost. Mm -hmm. Um. And I was, I feel like I was kind of walking around in a room without a door. Right. Um, and I'm just trying to find that exit way. Right. And then I found they, they referred me over to Boulder Crest and I was like, wow, that's the second time I've heard that. Let me reach out. And, you know, I met the, the program director. We had a conversation and I, I tell you, it, it changed my life and it's been 66 days. I mean, obviously I can't put the cart before the horse, but right. everything that I was given in that time frame has really 
um, been an eye-opening experience to me. That's awesome, man. Um, yeah, like I said, I can't commend you even more than I already have because there's no words. Because the thing is, is what's going to happen is all the work that you've done these 66 days, and they're going to compound to even more days and years. What's going to happen is you're going to run into an individual that you're going to recognize, holy shit, I was in that same position. And you're going to be able to pay it forward by giving back to this individual uh, with all the stuff that you've learned. And you're already doing it. You're already doing it. So I, I commend you for that. I, I clap my hands, honestly, to that. More and, and the best thing I can tell you, too, is I'm going to be able to give it back to my kids, right? Oh, um, yep. you know, the change of behavior of kids, you know, kids are like sponges, right? From zero to five, they are constantly watching and absorbing what we are doing as parents to lead, to show, you know, leadership, followership, everything in between, right? Your kids are constantly watching what you're doing. And what was a big change for me was starting to see my little guy was um, kind of coming at me when I was getting frustrated. And I was like, well, why is this happening? Well, I found out why it was happening is because I'm bringing a negative behavior home. And if I'm raising my voice, well, he's getting amped up and he's reacting because it's fight or flight, right? He's only doing what he knows. And kids don't know how to express themselves to the point where they can say, hey, dad, let's take a deep breath. You know what I mean? They're just like, ah, you know, going crazy. And it's like, <laughs> right. all right, well, here we do. But it, it allowed me to understand. Like I said, it's a work in progress. But I, I feel like the biggest thing I was able to bring home um, besides being aware of what's going around me is, is just that response versus reaction because we react all day with our families, but we respond to calls every day. And that, that in itself is huge, right? We're fixers. We want to fix yeah, everything. And there ain't no manual for parents, right? There's, there's a thousand books for how to be a cop and different laws and everything else. But when it comes to be a parent, you're kind of, you know, flying by the wayside and trying to figure things out as you go. But, you know, it definitely makes it challenging because, you know, you want to do what's right for your kids, but if you bring back the positive behavior and that positive the actions that you're finding, whether, you know, I tell my boys, Hey, I'm going to go out and meditate for 20 minutes. That'll be back in a couple minutes, or I'm going to go do some exercise, or I'm going to go that they hear that they're going to start to emulate that and become yep. that. And yep. you know, that that's something they can take with them for the long haul, you know? Yep. No, definitely. I love that, man. It's all about, um, you know, your kids are a reflection of you. And if your kid's yelling and screaming and fighting, then you know what? You can't blame them. You got to blame yourself. So I definitely agree with that. Um, we're going we're gonna to switch gears here. This is a sure. touchy subject. Uh, it's a recent happening that just happened Jeez. in Minnesota. Um, but it's also happened in Louisville, Kentucky with the Breonna Taylor. And it's sure. a talk about no-knock warrants. I don't know about your department. So a lot of different agencies have different rules and, you know, different stipulations on how you get these no knock warrants and you being a detective, I wanted to bring this up because I wanted to know how this quote unquote narrative of these no knock warrants need to be done away with. But first, what I wanted to ask you was, have you ever done a no-knock warrant? And can you also explain to the listeners, because not all listeners that listen to Brownie and Blue are law enforcement. Can you explain to the listeners that what goes into a no-knock warrant and why is it a no-knock warrant? Right. And it, there, there's a whole lot. And 
this is a very, very touchy subject. And I, and I, I understand the concerns of the world. And I, I can say I can even respect the concerns of the world um, as they are. Um, however, there are um, certain things that go into aspects for these no-knock warrants. We have done no-knock warrants in the past. We rely on um, different units throughout the state to, to execute our warrants for us. Uh, we don't necessarily commonly go in and do it ourselves because we have, you know, the special operators that go in and do it. And, you know, they're all tiered in different levels, just kind of like the military way is, right? Um, and when, when we get to a level when you're starting to do no-knocks, I mean, my perspective is you want to have the best of the best going in and executing these warrants because it, it's safety in numbers, right? And obviously, when it goes into putting these things together, um, we do several warrants a year. Um, you know, there's all different kind of ways to skin a cat, right? Um, and, you know, knocking an ounce is, you know, the, the biggest thing that, you know, folks want to do. But common times is when you think about it is, you know, once you start knocking and banging on the door, there's two things that are going to happen. Evidence is going to get destroyed or people are going to get in defensive fighting positions and, you know, start to fight, you know, for whatever reasons going on. And, you know, not that I'm, I'm not intimately familiar with the shoot, the different things that are going on, because like I said, I try to stay away from the media. I am aware of them. Um, but I'm, that's not my job to judge. Right. I'm not, I'm not there. I'm not the guy that's going in and executing these warrants. Um, but what I can say is with these jobs that are being done, it's all about the totality of the circumstances and what goes into establishing a no knock. Right. You, you, you put all your facts and you know circumstances on the table. You start identifying criminal histories and backgrounds and um, previous police interactions, history of violence, the nature of the crime that you know is being sought for the warrant. Um, has there been weapons observed or the weapons involved or not involved? Um, what kind of folks are in the house? Are there other folks in the house that necessarily have these same you know histories that go into play there? And you know if those are the cases, you know what's the best way to do it? you know, because eventually it's got to be done. Um, Because if not, people start continuing to get hurt, right? But, you know, you're not going to send a social worker and knock on these folks' door and say, hey, I need you to come out, bad guy, and and do what we got to do. But there needs to be an element of surprise that goes into it. But if you're going to do it, you're going to need to send your best folks in to do it. Um, Let me me just stop you right there real quick. I don't want to step on your toes, but I just want to explain something. So, you said totality of circumstances, which is a key aspect, right? And you also talked about all these other factors. And for listeners, there is case law, right? There is case law that goes with this, and, and it's called Graham versus Connor. And then there's a acronym that goes with Graham versus Connor, where the Supreme Court listed these factors, right? The factors are SERP, right? Severity of the crime, the immediacy of the threat, the resistance of the individual or individuals, and then the fleeing aspect of the individual. Do they have avenue of escape? Are they resisting to the point where they're going to escape? And on top of that, you have these other factors that go into a deadly force scenario, possibly, right? You size, condition, age, the ability, the duration of a violent uh, crime, all these different things, right, that go into this. So that's what you are explaining, and I want to hit this clearly because this isn't something that police officers and detectives and SWAT officers just go into and just say, you know what, I'm going to go get a no-knock warrant because just because. There has to be a multitude of things that have to be done. And not only that, but there has to be other eyes that look at this. It's not just one detective saying, this is what I need. 
you're 100 correct. And then, and then, and then on top of that, you have in different jurisdictions, whether it's federal or state, you have states' attorneys, you have USA's, which are United States attorneys, right? You have them looking at it. You have all these individuals. You have chiefs. You have deputy chiefs. You have magistrates. You have different levels of a magistrate, you have a judge, you have all these different aspects, you have these things, and these people that are in place to say that this is a go. So it's not just this free willy nilly thing that officers do, and that it's just done just because. And the investigation isn't just overnight. So I wanted to put that out there, because I wanted to make it clear to those listeners that a no knock warrant is for the protection of the severity, the immediacy, the flight, and the resistance. And that resistance can be from a deadly standpoint. Uh, When you talked about posture, the posture is possibly getting a gun, possibly getting a knife. In most warrants, Jeff, you can correct me, but most warrants that are served across this United States are warrants that, from my experience, when I had to go and do a warrant, I had to knock at the door and I literally had my supervisor next to me and he was timing the announcement from the time that I knocked and announced, he was timing 60 seconds because that was our protocol from the department that I left 20 years. 60 seconds. Long time. That's a long time. And that's even for narcotics. That's even for you know, uh, things that could go along with weapons, right? In a house, that's 60 seconds that this person has or people have to prepare. Now, as a law enforcement officer, I was always scared to do those 60 second wait because I had no clue what was going to happen and the preparation of what was going to happen when and if that person didn't come to the door and open it. Um, so I just wanted to put that out there. Go ahead. They not come. They don't commonly come to the door when you knock, especially at six o'clock or five o'clock or four <laughs> o'clock in the morning, right? Exactly. Door, right? Yep. So you know that's the one thing I wanted to get out. I didn't want to step on your toes, but I wanted to put that out there clearly. But as far as for you, has this has this affected you? Has this affected your agency and how they're looking at no knock warrants? Right. So we, we commonly, I mean, yes, in a sense. Yes. So ultimately we don't do many um, just because that, you know, we, we try to keep it as easy as we can. No knocks are meant for, like I said, the most severe crimes that we are, are in place there. Um, however, um, the ones, you know, and we commonly refer to the specialty folks to say, Hey, listen, do you want us to request a no knock, you know, for these following reasons and, and list them out to them and let them know, Hey, this is what you're dealing with. And they're say, yeah, no, we're okay with the knock and announce. And, you know, we leave that to the, the, the those that are trained to specifically go in and, and do the, the breaching and, and effectively securing the folks within the residence. But, you know, in today's world right now, I mean, the safest means of, of doing this stuff is, is key, right? And, you know, safety for all sides, you know, nobody wants to see anybody get hurt. Um, me as a police officer and probably I'd say 99.9% of the folks that I work with we're here to help. We're not here to hurt. Right. And, you know, there's always going to be a small number that are, are rogue and that are not playing the game they need to be doing. Right. But, um, 
you know, and, but that's in every career and profession, right? It's not just law enforcement. There's, there's bad doctors, there's bad lawyers, there's bad everybody. Right. Um, but when it comes to it, you know, you want to do things in a safe manner and the safety is for all parties, not just one side. And if a no knock is to provide safety, the problem is the media portrays it in one light and it, it definitely gives it an aspect to understand where, Hey, that wasn't the way it's supposed to be. You don't know all the facts. You're only giving me this, this tiny tidbit of what happened. Show me the facts and circumstances and what laid it out. Who reviewed it? Who pro who, who went through all the process of review? You know, it's not just the, 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 the local PD or whoever's doing it is not, like you said, is not the one reviewing it. This, this sees many, many hands um, before it's even gone and, and made an adjustment to go to the point where you say, Hey, this is okay. You know, but I, I see them going by the wayside um, unless it's the most severe situations, you know, and those that, you know, are in that, that process, will see that. Right. But I, I see that going by the wayside for a good majority of law enforcement across the country. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, unfortunately, I agree with you because I'm sure there's a lot of other no-knock warrants that we never hear about because guess what? It did save the officers and the people that were inside. And it was I'm probably the, talking hundreds and thousands that we never hear about. <laughs> you, hear, you only hear about the ones that go wrong, right? Exactly. Um, exactly. But all the ones that go right. But, you know, the, the thousands of arrests and thousands of folks that you help and you know, it just takes one. And like I said, it's like anything else, right? It's, you know, it happens in all professions and careers. It's, it's unfortunate. Nobody ever wants to see anybody get hurt. Yep. Um, you know, and you know, that's why we do what we got to do, but you know, sometimes it's, it's folks that just, it, it's the rhetoric that's put out in the media world and, you know, the way it's portrayed to, to those that are out there. And it, it's sad to see where we've gone at this point. Well, I appreciate you delving into that. Um, I know that isn't going to come back to you <laughs> in any way. I mean, it's just it's just pure um, police talk and to me, common sense stuff that's happened. Um, I wanted to ask you, just out of your whole life, you know, it doesn't have to be law enforcement, doesn't have to be military. What's the best piece of advice that you've gotten? And why was it so powerful to you? Well, I can tell you there's two things that stand out directly to me with that question. And, you know, it, one was recently given to me from War, um, Boulder Crest was, you know, as a warrior class member of that community. Right. You know, when we talk about the warrior class, those that go out and do things that are commonly done. And, you know, we meet things, you know, and do things that other folks aren't going to be doing just because it's not where we are, because um, we're serving our community and, and protecting and doing things that not common people will do. Right. Um, but it's OK to be different. Right. You know, we have dark humor. We see bad things all the time. Um, it's okay to be different. It's okay to be, you know, not the normal Joe Blow that's walking around the street, right? Cops are weird, right? We sit with our backs to the door. We do all these weird different things. And, you know, I, I got to make sure that I'm, you know, 360 all the time. I get out, I do five and 25, you know, all this weird <laughs> stuff that we do, right? But it's okay, right? It's, it's situational awareness, but there's there's a level to it, right? So that that's, you know, one thing that that stood with me with, with Boulder Crest was it's okay to be different and there's nothing wrong with it because that's what we're trained to do. Um, and we're given that training over a course of a career, whether it's, you know, when you start out from the military, I've got 20 years in the military this year, 16 years, you know, starting my 16th year as a PD, you know, that's a long time to be doing this stuff over and over again. And yes, I'm going to be different. My wife's friends are very different than I am. They're great people, but they don't understand my world. 
and I don't understand their world, but that's okay. I'm not opposed to it. And I'll just ask them a thousand questions and try to understand how their worlds live. You know what I mean? Because um, that's just who I am, right? Um, but then the other thing, you know, you know, we talk about going back to verbal judo and, you know, you want to treat folks as you want to be treated under identical circumstances. Um, there's a video that Chick-fil-A put out a couple of years ago, and I can send it to you um, if you want to put it in your show notes. But, you know, it's basically they go around the store and I don't know if you've ever seen it. Um, but, man, I tell you, it is powerful because everybody has a story. Every single person walking around has something going on in their lives, good, bad or indifferent, that will touch somebody. But you may walk around and you're looking at them like they're smiling or doing this, but they lost a loved one. They've got, you know, terminal cancer. Like you name it, man. Like everybody's got something going on in their lives. And when you're in a situation, you got to treat folks as you would want to be treated in that situation. But we don't know what these folks are dealing with. Mm -hmm. We want to treat those folks so that they get the dignity and respect that they deserve and are, are, are living that way. So I, I often say that, you know, you got to treat folks under identical circumstances as you would wish to be treated. And that, that to me is huge, you know, and I'll send you that link to that. Yeah, definitely. Video. Like, it's very, very powerful. When you watch it, I, I you know, I, I'm touched every time I see it. Yeah, definitely send it. And I will definitely promote that. Um, and I think uh, those two aspects of what you just talked about are benchmarks, right? They're benchmarks and standards of how, we should be living and thinking. And I, I definitely appreciate that. Absolutely. La the last thing we're getting to the end here. Okay. So the last thing you have two minutes, I'm not going to time you, but you have a couple minutes. If you were president, what would you be focused on? What would you want to change about modern policing? All right. Well, listen, my, my wife always tells me I could talk an ear off a wood monkey. So you know, I, you know, I, I talk for days. Right. Um, you know, but, you know, when we talked about this briefly earlier, you know, if I were to focus, you know, and, and as a president of the United States and or president of wherever, it doesn't even matter if it's here or not. But, you know, the biggest thing is just to take and bring folks back to center. Right. We're so far left and right in this world right now that it doesn't even make any sense with how things are. Right. One side sees things this way, the other side sees things this way, but why don't we start working to a center median, right? And bring folks back to center. So we talk about balance, homeostasis, right? We're all in that, doesn't have to be neutral, but you're closer to center than you are far left and right, because then you can bounce your ideas back and forth and allow things to have a positive, effective change instead of that constant rhetoric of battle back and forth between these sides. Not everybody's gonna get along. We all can agree to, with that, right? Um, but I think, you know, we, we need to work on better communication. Um, you know, I think that's huge. And I think that with, when it comes to policing, I think that, you know, kids today are so wrapped up in their phones and, and tied in with that, that we need to, you know, work on having them communicate effectively, give it to them at the Academy. 23 weeks of yelling and screaming is not the way to go anymore. Like there's a need for discipline and structure, but you also need to work in communication, tactical communication and ways to communicate effectively because that's what's going to save your life when you're able to walk in and say, hey, guess what's going on? You know, George Thompson with verbal judo. My, my man goes in and sits on a couch during a domestic argument and starts reading a newspaper. You know, that's they talk about that call in a scenario in his book. And it's powerful because he's waiting for it. And they're like, kind of like people are like, what the hell's going on? Right. But then he has a conversation with them and it, situ it settles the situation down. But communication is, is powerful. 
And if you can leverage it the right way and treat people with dignity and respect, you know, offer options rather than threats and allow folks to be able to maintain control and dignity in a sense, right? Because nobody wants to be told negatively, you know what I mean, how to do things. That, that's huge. And I think that if they can give that early on, it's going to carry through a law enforcement officer's career until they do. And it's got to be continual. It just can't just give it to an academy and be done with it, right? You know, it's got to be an ever, everything growth and, you know, constantly growing to make things better today. I love that, man. I really do. Everything you, you just hit full circle. And that's what um, I love the aspect of the verbal judo and everything that you talked about and how to change is all about communication. And you're right. Uh, communication is a very powerful thing. And everything that you've gone through as far as just even being in Korea and the exemplification of learning the differences on how other cultures communicate can take you a long way and it can de-escalate a lot of situations. That's not only with the demographic of culture, but it could also be the demographic of age, right? A millennial to an older person, um, uh, gender from a male to a female, and how they think, all these different things that law enforcement officers, I think, and like you said, need to be more acute and more aware of and more trained on. And I love that, man. I love the fact that you have gone from, you know, this individual that possibly bought into the machismo and Mm -hmm. now you're a vulnerable individual and you had to work on yourself. And guess what? That right there is strength. And I applaud you for that. I applaud you for being on this podcast. Thank you so much, Jeff Angle. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks, sir. Where can people find you if they want to get in contact with you? Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I, this, uh, it's just my name on LinkedIn. It's my, my main spot. Um, I do uh, have social media on Facebook and Instagram. Um, they're, they're pretty much locked down just because the world's weird. But, you know... <laughs> You know, if, if you catch me on a private discussion, we have a talk, you know, I always, before I, you know, I'm not just going to invite the world in, but, you know, I, I keep a closed circle, you know, I, there's no need to expand because, you know, you got, I got to, you know, protect the integrity of myself and family because I do do a job that's crucial, right? Um, but, you know, not that I do anything bad on there, but it's, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, I got to trust folks that I'm going to bring in and, you know, have a conversation, but LinkedIn's my number one spot. Uh, you can find me on there with my, my, just my first and last name. Um, I can send you my link if you want to post it to the show notes and, you know, however you got that way. Sure. Sure. And uh, also all the other, uh, just for the listeners, if you need help, you can definitely call. Uh, well, you can definitely reach out to Jeff on LinkedIn. If you do need something, if you're a law enforcement officer, veteran, you have great resources. I'll put it in the show notes. Boulder Any Press. first responders. We're, yep. we're, we're, I have, re- I can, ha- I can get connections to wherever we need. Um, I, I've built a, a network and I'm huge with networking. Um, I, I have folks that if, if you're struggling on the military side, we got folks there. Um, I often find that our fire brothers and sisters, as well as EMS and dispatchers also fall in that realm of, of first response. And even our medical field professionals, doctors and nurses, you know, these folks are all on the front lines doing, doing work that, you know, I often say it's different, right? But it's it's the work that's needed. And, you know, in times of today with COVID and everything else going on, you know, we're all, it's all one team, one fight at the end of the day. Yep. Well, 
Thank you again, Jeff. This has been a great conversation and uh, I'm honored that you came on. Thank you. Thanks, sir. I do appreciate it. Thank you.